Okay. <clears throat> so, a little bit, as I mentioned this morning or alluded to, it's a kind of a interesting or mystifying or frustrating, depending on your particular mood on a particular day. But I find that with our, most of us have a really clear, sincere intention to live as good a life as we can, right? To cultivate the wholesome, to cultivate the good, to be good to others, to be happy in our lives, not to cause harm. And still, maybe I'm the only one, but I don't think we find ourselves saying and doing things that cause ourselves suffering, cause other people suffering, that aren't really at all how we think we want to live. How, how does it keep happening? Well, that's the whole path. I just want to come in from a particular angle tonight, starting with um, a sutta, a part of a sutta from the Diga Nikaya, about when Saka, king of the gods, comes down to the Buddha. Now, king of the gods means he's living in one of these heavenly realms that really has quite a lot of pleasant experience and also goodness, not just total sensual pleasure. But he comes down and says to the Buddha in the middle of this sutta, he says, what is it, dear sir, that even when we are delighting in the wholesome, And what is the fetter, what is the bond that we think, may we live free from hostility, free from violence, free from ill will? We really mean to live in a wholesome, good way. What is it that we still find ourselves living in hostility, living with ill will, you know, living with confusion, violence, rivalry, all of that, even when we're trying to delight in the wholesome and do our best? Now, this is Saka, king of the gods, so we could cut ourselves some slack. And the Buddha, of course, gives a, a, a complex answer so that I'll just speak a little, about a little part of it tonight. But he says the bonds, what we're fettered by, the first answer he gives is envy and covetousness, that that's our first problem, holding on to things, not being generous, trying to protect for ourselves. And that is caused by holding to preferences, by holding on to our choices for what is dear and not dear, is a more specific translation. So when dear and not dear exist in our minds and we hold on to that, we hold on to preferences. This is, of course, fed by desire. Desire is fed by thinking about it. Thinking is fed by the endless papancha proliferation of thought. So that's what I want to talk about tonight, really, on this point of having and holding to preferences. Just one, one of the many ways we do that, and do we even see that as a problem, as part of the, the root source of our suffering, and that We maybe don't see it as a problem, which might be part of the problem. So holding to preferences. Often when one reads this or we talk about it, it comes up in many people's minds, of 
course we have preferences. You know, we're not just dead slabs of meat, you know. We know what's pleasant and unpleasant. We, we make choices in our life. I mean, the Buddha made choices in our life. We have to vote. You know, we have to make choices when you go through the food line. You know, you have a preference. You know, the difference between rice and beans. You know, the difference between cooked and uncooked oatmeal and so on and so on. The mind can get quite wigged out going through that. <laughs> Remember, it's not the having it's the holding to them. And realizing that having and holding to preferences really arises from, from each of us, our deep yearning for happiness, for peace. And this is really the Buddha said it, the Dalai Lama says it in lovely ways, that we all experience an innate inner desire for happiness and to overcome suffering. That's normal. That's not an unwholesome, bad thing, that we have a yearning, a real yearning for happiness, to overcome suffering. That's what gets us on a path, right? We wouldn't be here if we just, you know, if I have no preferences and I don't care, I suffer, I don't suffer. What's the difference? I cause suffering, I don't. What's the difference? Of course, you know, we make some choices. That's what gets us on a path. But then it's seeing that we don't actually, at least when we begin the path, and this keeps refining as we go along, really understand what happiness is. We want happiness, but the only way, at least in the world at large, as the Buddha uses the phrase, untaught worldling. He uses that phrase a lot. I have trouble saying it for some reason, worldling, or puttajana, but that's us, unless someone here's an arhat. We're, we're untaught worldlings, puttajanas, <laughs> and there's one phrase in the Buddha, puttajanas are mad. <laughs> They're just mad. We just don't understand things in a way that brings us peace and happiness. And in trying to achieve happiness and overcome suffering in our untaught, unenlightened, just unenlightened, I don't mean the big enlightened, I just mean in understanding the way things are, way, we keep spinning and spinning trying to be happy by doing what we think will make us happy, but that actually just keeps us in more suffering because we're so confused. We don't know what happiness is. A few years ago, a friend sent me an article, uh, I think it's from actually from the Wall Street Journal, um, uh, an interview with a a man who's uh, a professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard, at least he was at this point, and together with several other um, scholars, a Nobel laureate in economics, another scholar at Princeton, they were doing years and years study on... um, the nature of happiness and how we as humans predict what will make us happy. Now, the name of this article is The Feudal Pursuit of Happiness. So that's going to give you a clue where it goes. I just noticed in the last year that his book, this man's name is Daniel Gilbert, he now has a book out that I, I assume I haven't read. It's from this work he's been doing. And the book is called Stumbling on Happiness. So it's basically the gist of the article is we basically don't have a clue 
what makes us happy. And we don't understand. Now, this is just scientific study. This is not, you know, Buddhist-based at all, as you'll see. But their study has been, how do we as humans predict what will make us happy? And, um, and how do we feel from the choices we make? Is it, are our predictions accurate? How do we feel afterwards? And he says this is so important because, he says, almost all of our actions, and then he gives this choice, the decision to buy jewelry, to have children, you know, to get a new job, to come do a meditation retreat, that's not in the article, um, are based on our internal predictions of the emotional consequences of these events, right? Or we would say, and I will say in a minute in our Buddhist terms, and we're looking for pleasant feeling. We make our choices, as Ajahn Buddhadasa says, 95% of the choices you make are made based on pleasant feeling, getting and having more pleasant feeling. So that's not what they say. But they go, he goes on to say, we make our decisions, our choices, based on thinking that this paycheck, this car, this piece of jewelry, having kids, whatever, is going to make me happy for the long term. And he said, do we even know? And if we don't know even what makes us happy now, how will we know what makes us happy in the future? And it's interesting, because he said, basically, we, we miss, they call it miswanting, he calls it. We don't really understand. We think that something is going that is going to be pleasant, we think it's going to make us happy for much longer than it does. And conversely, something that we think is going to be really unpleasant, we think is going to make us unhappy for much longer than it does. And he says we make the wrong choices in that way. He says, for example, if you were asked, would you rather have a broken leg or a bad knee? And most people think, well, I'd rather have a bad knee because a broken leg would be really a lot of suffering. But actually, the broken leg, he says, heals much quicker. The bad knee is like ongoing, niggling suffering more longer for years. So like if you fear the bad breakup of a relationship, would you rather have that or would you rather have a tense marriage? And people say, well, no, I'd rather have the tense marriage. But that's going to drag out suffering, suffering, suffering for years you have the intense breakup, and he says, things aren't as bad as long as you think they're going to be, and they're not as good as long as you think they're going to be, but we never seem to get that. And it's just really, I'll, I'll come back to the article in a minute, but it's really interesting. He says, um, he says, basically, we just don't understand. We don't have a clue what makes us happy, and we keep overestimating and making the wrong choices. Okay, that's scientific evidence for basically what the habits of our mind that I want to talk about tonight, you know, the very basic ones that we tend to think, to react to all experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, all the whole range of mental experience, any physical sensation. If it's pleasant, we don't notice that, but we like it. We move toward it. We want it. If it's unpleasant, we tend not to notice that, but we judge it really as bad, wrong, shouldn't be happening, move away. Neutral, we just kind of space out or get bored or look for something more intense. These are really strong habits of our mind that we mostly don't notice. And then we make our choices 
through the veil of those habits, kind of we look through it like, you know, green colored glasses or something. And so when we're making choices, and in our life, and in our retreat, and in our sitting, that coming from this sincere yearning for happiness, just have a look how many of our choices, how much of our maybe not very clear idea of what happiness and freedom would be like, how much of it's pleasant. How many of us, when we think about when we finally finish this arduous practice and we're enlightened, we're happy, right? And what does happy mean? Does your back still hurt? Are you still like forgetting things all the time? Is that kind of really unpleasant coworker who's always in your face, have they suddenly stopped doing that? The whole world has suddenly magically started to work the way we wanted it to work. I mean, I know we don't say that, But really, looking at it, it's like we don't awaken into a different world. The world doesn't change. And people with all their ideas and opinions, well, look around. It doesn't change. Even the Buddha. And this this is like how ingrained this sense of assessing things by pleasant, unpleasant, neutral can be. It it was only a few years ago I suddenly realized, oh, look at the Buddha's life. After he became the Buddha, not even before, after. In terms of his life, it doesn't look like it was a piece of cake, you know? Sure, he had preferences. He made choices, right? He chose to live as an ascetic monastic. That's a choice. He made plenty of choices. He chose to how to teach He chose which things to talk about. He chose how to set out the rules and how to have the monastic life live. He chose who his attendants would be. He made lots of choices. We're not saying that there's like this gray sameness and you you, you don't have opinions and you don't have choices. It's the holding to them, thinking that choice is going to make me happy. That's the difference. And so when the Buddha lived his life, he walked around India barefoot, you know, with a begging bowl for 45 years. And if you read the suttas, not that I've read all of them, but it's interesting to see that he had the same kinds of external beautiful experiences and problems that still exist. I mean, he couldn't fix the world. His clanspeople on his mother and father's side went to war with each other over water rights. He could kind of come and mediate and stop the war sooner, but that was really all. A lot of the kings that would come to be his disciples, one of the kings was his disciple, his son killed him to take over the kingdom. You know, the Buddha couldn't prevent that kind of thing. And if you read a lot of the people that come and talk to him, (laughs) it's just like one big annoyance, you know, if you weren't really equanimous. All these people coming and challenging him and not believing him and the different monks getting into squabbles with each other. I mean, there's even one sutta where the two sets of monks are squabbling so much, the Buddha goes to try and calm it down and they basically say to the Buddha, oh, go away, we'll take care of it ourselves. You don't need to... They didn't even listen to him, the Buddha. People are people. 
so he had all kinds of, you know, what we would call dukkha, stuff that's difficult. His back hurt, he got headaches, his main disciples died before he did, so he experienced that loss. I mean, it's just life. And yet he was the liberated one, the peaceful one, heart and mind free from suffering. So clearly, if we believe that, and if we didn't, probably no one would be here, um, clearly the freedom, the happiness the Buddha is talking about is not about having external things, including external people, acting in the ways that we want. Well, we know that on some level. On some level, I don't know if we know that. Because where does external things stop and internal things begin? And frankly, is it any different internally? We're just talking about the six sense experiences, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and mentality, thoughts, and emotions. So whether the object is someone coming and talking to you and complaining about the other bhikkhus and whining and challenging you, or whether the object is the mind as you're sitting on the pillow being reactive. Same difference. It's just unpleasant experience arising. What's the suffering in the unpleasant experience? What are we talking about when we say not having preferences, not holding to preferences? So is that in the external life but more in the internal life, not holding to preferences that things should be this way and not that way. Not holding to the preference that I should be have a really concentrated mind as, com- as compared to a mind that's scattered all over the place. Not holding to the preference that my back shouldn't hurt and because my back is hurting, something's wrong. Not holding to the preference that I should feel this open, loving, open-hearted experience, and because it's not, it's closed down, it's tight, I'm meditating wrong. But that's really not very easy for us to, to even wrap our minds around, never mind really trusting that. And so this practice is about, it's not about getting things the way we want them. It's not about getting your meditation technique all together and perfect and you sit down and it just flows every time because sooner or later something will happen and it won't flow, I promise you, unless you die. Sometime that will happen. Then something else will flow. Meditation is sort of designed to bring up, to take us into every corner where there's holding to preference and we don't even recognize it. Where these habits of our mind of judging pleasant as good, right, unpleasant as bad, wrong, the natural recoiling from unpleasant, the natural holding, identifying, going towards the pleasant, and the, just the delusion around the neutral. Well, you know, of course, those are the three basic torments of mind, the three basic kalesa in Pali. Uh, the afflictions of mind, greed, hatred, delusion, loba, dosa, moha. I mean, they're the big three. They're like, you know, the root that all of our mental confusion and suffering comes from. In terms of just exploring out of interest, 
how these habits are created and acted on in any particular moment of experience, because it's something that arises and passes in every moment, working with noticing these habits and response to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience is really fascinating. It's a great way in to explore. It's ubiquitous in that with every moment of sense contact, we, we, the mind, experiences it, feels it as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So Vedana, this translation of feeling tone, is really a process of feeling. We're not going to notice it every moment. Don't even try. But in many moments, it is noticeable. And noticing how quickly, it's really fascinating, how quickly, how quickly the mind moves, well, we know the mind moves incredibly quickly, from, say, experiencing pleasant to way down the road, way down the road into a whole complex. Let me see. Choki Nima, who is a, a Tibetan, he's a wonderful Tibetan Rinpoche. He's the, the brother of uh, Soki, Soki Nima and uh, Mingyur Rinpoche, his four brothers. And he was talking about just watch the fickleness of the mind, the unreliable nature of the mind, how easily it is influenced just by a pleasant or unpleasant sight or thought etc., into an immediate mood. And then that mood immediately takes us into a whole world of construction, of creation. So I just just have been noticing that myself. I mean, it's really so much fun if you just approach it as exploring, as seeing how the mind works, how in this contact and pleasant and unpleasant the mind moves so fast, and just watch the construction come up. Watch how, if we don't see it, we act on it. We believe it. So I was driving, oh, it was a couple of weeks ago somewhere. Maybe it was a couple of months ago because I've been in Europe. But anyway, I was driving somewhere. Just calm, no traffic, nothing going on. And I was turning from one road to another. And I was, I was fairly quiet. I didn't have the radio on. My mind was pretty calm. And I noticed just as I was turning that it was on a fast road, the car behind me was just a little too close. That's all. I turned, the car was a little too close, but it didn't turn, kept going. And I noticed just in that, the car is too close. It felt unpleasant. An immediate little aversion came up. That's not right. They shouldn't be so close. It was so quick, so subtle. And I thought, whoa, what if I had been in busy traffic? You know, and that little aversion would come up. They're too close. And then I, I turned onto another road with no body. I didn't really have to react to anything. But if you do that, and there's that little bit of aversion, and then another car cuts in, and there's a little more aversion, and pretty soon, road rage, you know, in, in no time. And we don't really see how it builds until the, the poor last person who cuts in front of us, you know, and we just. <laughs> but it just starts that quickly. It's too close, and it shouldn't be like that. I don't like it, right? Or pleasant. I was sitting, I think, this morning, and just some little, some image came. You know how that is. Just some memory, some image. It may not even have a thought that has any kind of meaning. It doesn't even have to. Just some image came up, and it, I didn't notice pleasant. I just noticed it felt nice. 
And right away, oh, that's nice. And then my mind brought up another more pleasant image. Oh, that's nice. And then it starts, you know, and that can go just in two seconds. You're into a total pleasant fantasy. Whatever way, it doesn't even matter what it is. It's food, or it's sex, or it's vacation, or it's having a nice sitting, or it's ten. It doesn't matter what it is. The mind's just concocting things. Pleasant, 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 you know? Poo, down the road. Luckily, we're sitting on the cushion. That's what's so good. You hopefully won't act on it. Although here, because the bell doesn't ring, you might get up and go, oh, just, just go get some oatmeal with hot water. That'll ring, you know? There's nothing else, so something. But in our daily life, poo, we can really act on it a lot. Not that the acting is bad. It's the delusion, the acting, thinking, this is going to make me happy. And we really think it. We don't even know we think it over and over and over. I think, oh, if only that car wasn't so close to me, everything would be okay, you know? And you get, you get it, right? That's so, so deeply ingrained. And so when we come to a meditation, not just a retreat, but the way we relate to meditation, the technique, the sitting, the walking, the watching our mind, it's the same mind. And so even though we we come to the path of awakening really to see through how we suffer, at least when we start, we're starting with the same mind and we haven't even begun to see through. I mean, when we start, everyone here is past this. I know I'm saying stuff we all already know. But for me, anyway, I keep falling into the trap more and more subtly where I'll see, oh, I was doing this for pleasant again. I was evaluating by pleasant, unpleasant again. Just notice. We come to practice meditation and technique, even if it's just being open to everything. It's a particular mindset. It's a particular learned activity. And so we're going to bring the same habits of mind to that activity that we bring to anything else, at least in the beginning. Because, A, that's all we know, and two, we don't even know that we know it. We don't even know what the habits of our mind are until we turn around and look and get really familiar with them. So for many, many people, we come and we're practicing with really great sincerity, commitment, strong virya energy, but so often the energy is we putting out the effort in whatever way we're putting it out, to feel the breath or to hold to the form of sitting and walking or to work through sleepiness or whatever it is, we're very sincere, but we don't notice how often we're putting forth that effort to get some reward. And just check it out. Reward might not be the word we use. We're looking for results. The results, how often are the results you're looking for pleasant? How often are the results even static? I mean, if you're looking for a particular experience, we all know everything's impermanent, but not this experience that I'm putting out all my energy to get. That's what it's all about. How often is the experience or the state or whatever it is, and sometimes we're not even clear what it is until we look, somehow it's going to confirm me a sense of me, I'm going to feel better. 
And it doesn't, so sometimes the state we're looking for or why we think we're practicing isn't pleasant. Sometimes people are really kind of happy. They feel better and confirmed when they start having some kind of an emotional meltdown. They think, well, at least something's happening. Plenty of times, you know, I teach a lot of large, retreat, large retreats, and often it'll happen that someone starts really crying in the hall. That person usually feels embarrassed and feels like something's going wrong with their practice because they're crying and they should be calm and blissed out and concentrated. The people sitting around them come in and say, what's the matter with me? You know, I saw there was a person crying. They're really getting into their stuff. Stuff's really happening. And I'm just sitting here, you know, just noticing my breath and whatever comes. I'd much rather have some big, unpleasant knot of emotion to be working through. So even though that's going for unpleasant, the sense of confirming me getting somewhere is actually pleasant. Anyway, don't think about that a lot, but just notice how ingrained, how deeply ingrained these habits are of assessing the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And I say, I talk about this a lot. I've been looking at it for years and years. On some level, obviously not deep enough, on some level, I really absolutely know this. Happiness has nothing to do with pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Dukkha or unreliability includes all pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. But when the mind isn't calm, when I'm tired, when I'm getting caught on something, struggle, 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 somehow when I just let go and see underneath, ah, it's slipped in again. This unpleasant experience is not supposed to be happening. So I just want to drop in that thought to people here. If, by chance, as you're here in these days of silence, and something you don't like should happen to come up in your mind, in your heart, in your body, somewhere on these days, notice what the attitude in the mind that's paying attention is to that. We tend to get so involved in what's happening. Oh, my heart is closed like a rock. Oh, my back is killing me. Oh, I'm having beautiful free flow of sensations. We get so involved, and we can be mindful. You could name very precisely what's happening and how it's happening. But we forget, or we neglect, or we're so familiar with these habits of mind that we often don't even notice that we're looking through them and actually feeding the habits by how we're relating to the object. And it feels like we're being really mindful. So with painful, my heart's closed emotion, and the mind saying, you're no good, you're no good. And we can see that. We can name, this is all what's happening. But we forget to notice And when we turn around and notice, it's not so subtle. Oh, I can name everything that's happening to you. You know what? I really hate it. And it's a sign that my practice is going nowhere. And that attitude, that really not so subtle reaction, is not even noticed sometimes. Or when it is noticed, it's not with mindfulness. We totally believe it. We just totally believe it. To the point that we can't just let our 
uh, awareness open and sink into this is just what's happening. And even when I say it, I can just imagine when we're in it and, and someone comes into an interview and we say it, we can see them, yeah, uh-huh, right, this is just what's happening, right, uh-huh. And, you know, we suffer, we be with it, sometimes it's for a minute, sometimes it's for hours, sometimes, God knows, it's for days. And if we're really fortunate, we, at some point we notice this reaction in the mind and notice, oh, hating it feels like this. That's all. We move back and accept the hating it too. That's just another emotional arising. Hating it feels like this. In that moment, that's Ajahn Sumedho's terminology. Oh, it's like this. It's a great way to be really present and not feed the sense of it's me. Oh, hating it feels like this. Wanting it different feels like this. In that moment, it's moved out of blindly acting from the habit and the awareness is just noticing it. Oh, wanting it different feels like this. That's all. Awareness, again, as Ajahn Sumedho says, is the point that includes. It includes anything, everything. In the big picture, really the big secret of meditation practice is awareness doesn't care. It doesn't care one bit what's happening. Anything that's happening, any object of the sixth sense objects, when it arises, that's the chance to recognize it with awareness. That's the chance for awareness to become more familiar, more recognized. So any object's a doorway to awareness we tend to get so focused into the object that we don't turn around and notice what's color in the mind that's paying attention. When we see it as wanting, when we see that it's aversion, when we see that, duh, I don't know, that's all. That's all we have to do. And so awareness doesn't care, but what strengthens the wisdom, what strengthens the awareness is the steadiness, not of the object, but that willingness to show up, to just meet the wanting, to meet the pain, to meet the closed heart, to meet the hearing, to meet the sensation, to meet the smelling, to meet the thinking, to meet the not liking, to meet the judging. It really doesn't matter. And in terms of the technique, in terms of Vipassana, not in shamatha, which is really about cultivating a one-pointed awareness that shuts other things out and just goes deep, deep into one thing, but in terms of Vipassana, which is what I'm talking about now, bringing in that quality of interest. Oh, I forgot how I started that sentence. Anyway, in terms of the Vipassana, the steadiness of awareness is the point. All the techniques of Vipassana are to help collect and balance the attention enough just to notice what's happening. What's happening happens by itself. So whether we start with feeling the breath, we start with feeling just what's happening in the body, or if you're feeling more, uh, the mind's more at rest, you can just sit or walk and just notice what's happening by itself. So that's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing, emotions, thoughts, and that also includes the reactions in the mind. That's another emotion, wanting, preference, not liking, judging. It's all just happening. And so the whole kind of really direction of Vipassana is to more and more trust the awareness, 
less and less get all involved and entranced by whatever object it is in our reactions to it. What does it mean about me? Not much. Just the steadiness, moment after moment after moment. The awareness strengthens, the steadiness, the samadhi of mind strengthens, and the wisdom, the understanding also strengthens pretty much by itself. It takes some some practice and some trust, right? Because, from what I said before, we want some confirmation. It's hard to trust unless if we get some nice lights, if we get some big insight, if we get a sense of concentration. And I know from experience, then my self-judgment can let down and I'll think, oh, the practice is going good, I'm concentrated, it's flowing, things are nice. And then it does flow better because the wanting, the preference, the self-judging isn't being fed. But it's, we could learn not to feed the wanting, the preference, the self-judgment, even when it isn't going nice. Because it isn't about going nice. It's just about awareness showing up for anything that's happening. So, Joseph likes to say that our practice is simply coming back into natural wakefulness whenever we get distracted. So what do I mean by distracted? Distracted, really, the only thing I would call distracted is being completely lost and absorbed in thought with like no awareness that that's what's going on. There's consciousness, certainly, unless you're asleep or in a coma, there's consciousness. But you know how it is, you can be really in a thought You can come out and go, oh, I was thinking. And you could say what all the thought was about. So there was definitely consciousness. But awareness is the knowing that thinking is happening at the same time. You get a sense of the difference? You know how if you drive, those times when you're driving and you suddenly realize you haven't seen anything for two miles or something? I mean, that's scary to me when that happens. How did I get here? The last thing I knew, I was way back there. Clearly, consciousness has been going on. The appropriate decisions, thank God, have been being taken. There wasn't any awareness happening. So it can be like that here. When we're really lost in that way, that's what I would call distracted. But as soon as we're aware, oh, thinking is happening, hearing is happening, wanting is happening, we're no longer distracted. So distractedness is not about thinking Thinking is just as valid an object of awareness as anything else. Distractedness is not about the mind being away from the breath. Distractedness only means when we just, there is no conscious awareness of what's happening. And the second we're aware, oh, I was thinking, again, we're here. There's nowhere else to go. We're here. Awareness is here. So it's learning to trust that, that steadiness. Put out less forcing and more sense of trust of whatever's happening. And when we find we're trying to manipulate and change the object and fix what's happening, step back a minute. Just check what's going on in the mind and heart. Oh, I don't like it like this. Okay, not liking feels like this. I know the way I say it makes it sound very simplistic and easy and clear, and I know very well It's not always like that. But it's actually a lot more simple than we can 
trust somehow. Someone just said to me at the retreat I was teaching last week, they were practicing and they came in and said, is it, is it, and they were right, is, is it just that it's, it's really this simple and I just can't believe it? And it was true where they were coming from. They were really, the awareness was quite strong. I mean, not every minute, you know, we space out, but noticing a lot. The mind was getting less reactive. There wasn't so much wanting and aversion. They're really just noticing. And the more it's like that, the less there is to do. And that's what they were saying. I, I, like, I don't, I don't trust this. I should do something. I should make something happen. I should, you know. This way, there's a lot less me, a lot less doing. And when there's no me, there's also less feeling of being confirmed. So we're kind of on different territory. That's great. When you feel like you're in unfamiliar territory, that's fantastic. Because what's familiar territory? Wanting, aversion, and delusion. That's what's familiar territory. What's familiar territory? We know to push away what we don't like and try to make things the way we want them and space out if it's neutral. That's what's familiar territory. So when we're feeling all familiar and it's in control, watch out. Check out what's going on in the mind that's paying attention. When we feel like, I don't know what's happening. That's great. Then there's interest, not to make a difference, but just to see what's in the mind right now. You don't have to ask those words, but just that turning around, having a look. Oh, yeah. So back to the fickleness of Vedana, how pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral changes so much. I want to go back to this article because he's talking about what I was just saying and how, what the Buddha talked about a lot, really. He's saying that we don't realize when we want something pleasant, a pleasurable event, and we make a choice for it, he says, we don't realize how quickly we will adapt to a pleasurable event and make it a backdrop of our lives. So when that happens to us, that pleasurable event becomes ordinary. And then through becoming ordinary, we lose our pleasure from it. And we don't recognize that this is happening. And so we go out and look for something else to give us pleasure because that first one lost. Do you notice? Can you relate to that? And he says we keep moving on to the next thing or event, almost certainly make another error of prediction, not predicting that it'll become ordinary, and then another, ad infinitum. Perfect description of samsara. So really seeing this, seeing how really the habit of our life, the way we know to do things, is to move from pleasurable event to pleasurable event. Each time thinking is going to make us happy. I don't think I can overemphasize from my own experience how deeply ingrained this is. And I'd say almost every, almost, real conflict that comes up in meditation is something about this at the root. We're looking for something to make us happy. And this to the Buddha, you know the sutta of the two darts, I'm sure, where he talks about um, the difference between an enlightened person and a whirling is when someone, a normal person, is hit with a dart, a painful physical feeling, then on top of that, they beat their breast, they cry, they lament, they moan, they basically shoot another arrow at themselves, right? 
But a, an enlightened person, they're hit with the first arrow and nothing. Just space, right? They don't create any hoo-ha around it. No mental suffering. But the next piece, I think, is what's even more interesting. Under the impact, this for an ordinary whirling, having been touched by a painful feeling, he resists and resents it. So then in him who resists and resents, the underlying tendency of resistance comes to underlie the mind. It becomes a habit. And on top of that, an untaught whirling doesn't know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sense happiness. It's the only way out an ordinary person knows. So then they go and look for sense happiness, and then the habit comes to underlie the mind of lusting for pleasant feelings. I mean, can you relate? We're feeling upset, you go to the refrigerator, you make a phone call, you go out to the movies, you take a hot bath. None of these things are evil, but it's that sense of, this is unpleasant, let me go for something pleasant. That becomes the habit of mind. And what he says, and to me this is so poignant, really sad, is an untaught whirling doesn't know of any other escape from painful feeling except to go and get something pleasant. That's samsara. And so that's like what the habits of mind, and certainly the culture, feeds that. What it's built on, you know, it's like going for pleasant holds our world together. You know, dividing the world into pleasant, unpleasant, good and bad, that's where we're comfortable. That's where we take refuge. That's all we know how to do. Clinging is our refuge. It's so poignant to me, but it also makes me feel so grateful that we have a path, that we know there's another alternative, there's another meaning to happiness than just the enjoyment of pleasant feeling. Without knowing that, it is just an endless cycle. I just want to read the one last thing from this article. He's talking, this is the guy who's doing all this, all this study, Gilbert, and the interviewer's talking to him, and at the end, Gilbert's laughing, and he says, I should have learned more lessons personally from my research than I really have. He says, he's laughing, he says, I'm getting married in the spring, and that's because this woman is going to make me happy forever, and I know it. (laughs) He's laughing. He says, finds it funny, not because it's untrue, but because nothing could be more true. This is how he really feels. He says, I don't think I want to give up all these motivations, that belief that there's good and there's bad, and that this is a contest to try to get one and avoid the other. I don't think I want to learn too much from my research in that sense. This guy spent years doing it. So just dropping that in. Not to judge ourselves, but just to look. When we're suffering... How are we relating to the mind, to the practice, to whatever particular object is happening? We're relating to the object. Look back at the mind. Is there aversion to unpleasant? Are we trying to change it? Are we trying to hold on? Are we judging ourselves? Is it all about the object? Is it all about what it means about me? Or can we just step into the awareness that really doesn't care, but can meet whatever's arising? whatever's arising at any moment.
that's really mindfulness. That's really what our practice is about. And the retreat here is a microcosm of our life, you know, same mind, a little more subtle experience, but it's the same way that it works. So instead of going around, like Pema Chodron has a great line, she talks about how we go through our life trying to protect ourselves from unpleasant experience, from painful experience. We do, right? We think this is kindness to ourselves, but of course we can't do it. And she says, this remember, it's a great line. She says, like, when we realize we don't have to, and we can relax, and we can open to the beautiful, to the difficult, to all of life, then we realize we don't have to spend our life going around tensed up like we're sitting in the dentist's chair our whole life. It's really a releasing into. The Buddha didn't wake up into another life, but into this life, more open, present, to whatever's arising in this life just as it is because we're not holding to preferences. Preferences based on inaccurate understanding of what peace and happiness really is. So then, when, as we, even in moments, in a moment when the mind isn't caught in wanting, in aversion, in delusion, it's just here with whatever. Notice those moments whether you call them peaceful or happy or calm, or you don't really call them anything, but it's just, like a friend of mine says, a place of no problem. It's just the isness of things. Notice those more. Come to appreciate, to trust, to recognize this purity of awareness of mind that's always available when we're not lost in the preferences, the reactivity, not looking through it. Just notice that. As the Tibetans say, it's like resting at ease in whatever arises. Just this. Just this. So can we just sit quietly for a minute and then we'll close with the chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.